part of the struggle for democracy is very much that it is a struggle, that it just doesn't appear ready-made, that we actually have to engage and make it the ideal that was promised to us at the founding of this country, despite all the structural violence that went into that founding. World, we got this. The podcast talking big global challenges with the experts taking them on. Brought to you by the School of Global Affairs at King's College London. So on today's podcast, we're going to be talking water access in the United States or the lack thereof. Access to water is often seen as an issue for poorer nations and not something that actually occurs in rich nations of the global north. And yet, as today's conversation highlights, this is not the case. In fact, as we sit down to record this episode, and in the middle of a public health crisis, thousands of people across the United States do not have access to running water. Furthermore, this lack of water access is often linked to a broken housing model, which exacerbates existing inequalities in what today's guest calls the housing water nexus. And to discuss this and her most recent research titled Geographies of Insecure Water Access and the Housing Water Nexus in U.S. Cities, I'd like to welcome Dr. Katie Meehan onto the podcast. Thanks for having me. I should say we're recording this podcast a couple of days ahead of the US election. As well as being a senior lecturer in geography, you're also a US citizen. Your research is coming out a day before the US election. So a busy time all around. Yeah, that's right. I think it's appropriate that we're looking at Halloween and Dia de los Muertos or Day of the Dead and All Souls Day as um, a precursor to the U.S. election, because I think that captures the feeling for a lot of American citizens and voters who are feeling trepidatious, uncertain, exhausted and wondering um, what's going to come next, both on Tuesday's results and the time period afterwards. So I think it's been an interesting time. And of course, our paper is coming out in the middle of all this, which is also interesting. As I mentioned, uh, your most recent research is out on Monday, and it Mm -hmm. looks at the ways in which uh, water access is occurring in the United States. But I guess I wanted just to start for our listeners to actually understand what we mean at a kind of practical level when we say someone or, or a place has insecure water access. Yeah, so it's a great point. Household water insecurity, so water that's applied to like the domestic living unit, if you will, a household, is understood as the lack of safe, affordable, reliable, secure, quality water. The, The work that we're doing on household water access is one basic layer of that. In fact, you might think of it as a you know multi-tiered cake and water access is that very kind of fundamental level. If you don't actually have access, which in high-income countries like the United States, it often comes in the form of piped water. Um, if you don't have that, then you're already almost immediately insecure. But layered on top of that are multiple other dimensions of household water insecurity, such as affordability. You know, you could have piped water but not be able to pay the bills to keep it connected. Quality, such as the crises, the water poisoning crises that threatened Flint, Michigan over the last five years, and other elements and aspects of trust of, you know, the the other kind of dimensions of water security. So that's sort of the broad overview. What we're looking at in this study is just one specific aspect of that, but arguably a really important and fundamental one, water access. 
And your research mentions it references several kind of UN declarations around water access and the rights individual citizens should have to water. I mean, what kinds of basic rules at a kind of international, but also at a national level, do citizens, particularly in the United States, but also globally, have to the right to access water? Yeah. In 2009, the United Nations issued the Human Right to Water and Sanitation, which was a broad-based policy document or principle that, you know, made a very clear statement around that all human beings, regardless of where they are, had a sort of fundamental human right to access to secure water and sanitation as well. Sanitation being the sort of flip side or poor cousin to water access, but they tend to be integrated in many delivery systems. And so you have piped water coming in and maybe piped sewerage coming out of a house, for example. So that was 2009. And many countries subsequently adopted this policy principle in their constitutions or in their laws, their regulations, for example, in South Africa, as well as Mexico. In Mexico, it's actually enshrined in the constitutional principles. The United States differs from this. It doesn't, there's no coherent federal strategy or agreement or acknowledgement of a human right to water and sanitation. However, water in the United States is governed at um, decentralized levels, particularly at the state level, the, like the small S state. And so there are some examples of states, such as the state of California, that have actively adopted the human right to water in their policies. For example, In 2012, Governor Brown of California signed into law the recognition of the human right to water. And then more recently, I believe it was was under Governor Newsom's reign. (laughs) And so, so in the last few years, he actually put a larger financial package to help community water systems in rural parts of California actually meet this policy principle. So there is some movement in different parts of the U.S. to this idea that we should comply with universal water access as a kind of human rights principle. Coming on to your study and the research that you're releasing, uh, just that people will be able to look at after this, listen to this podcast. uh, What did you find, kind of how many households have insecure water access and how does it compare with other major developed nations? Yeah, we found this study sort of follows on a study I published a couple years ago, but this one really drills into what's going on in urban areas in the U.S. And what we found overall in the time period from 2013 to 2017, which is our sort of most recent chunk for household level data, is that an estimated 1.1 million people in the U.S. lack piped water access. What surprised us was that nearly half of them 47% were located in the 50 largest metropolitan areas. In other words, these patterns of who lacked piped water followed the kind of urbanized trend of where most Americans live, which is in cities. 73% of people who lacked households that lacked piped water were in cities and 47% were in the 50 largest cities. So these aren't small cities. These are not necessarily rural areas or hard to reach distant locations. This is in the New Yorks, the Los Angeleses, the San Franciscos of the U.S. And so that really struck me as signaling that water was not just a technical problem, but that water infrastructure revealed the social and spatial problems and inequalities that were entrenched in in American society. To respond to the second part of your question, how does this compare to other nations? What's really interesting about this is that we don't know because 
The data that we draw from is the U.S. Census data that asks question about household water access in their decennial and annual household surveys and their decennial uh, census count as well. And the U.S. is one of the few high-income countries that actually asks this kind of question that collects these demographic data. Comparatively, for example, in the United Kingdom, they don't. In fact, you know, from what I can gather, the census in the U.K. stopped asking questions about indoor piped water back in the 1960s, which is really interesting because that's when people have anecdotally told me that, you know, outdoor loos or toilets were actually being added on or stuck to the backs of houses in places like London, for example. So that's when kind of, you know, there was a big push to get um, more universal water access for, you know, the kind of remaining buildings and structures. France, Germany, they equally don't collect data right now on household water access. Many governments sort of assume that the problem is over. And there are other nations in Western Europe that do collect these data. And I think one of the more interesting questions and paths forward that my team and I are working on is how do the results in the United States compare with other equally, quote unquote, developed or high income countries? Like, do we see similar patterns? On what basis does it differ and why? And like, what can that sort of do to paint a broader picture of the state of water insecurity across these arguably advanced capitalist economies and societies? And you mentioned some of the patterns that emerged in the kinds of communities that are affected by water access. Were there particular groups that you found that that didn't have water access who were more likely not to have water access? Yes, I think, you know, some clear findings in that that the study presented is, is first of all, that um, the, you know, we were interested in two elements of this question, the who, who experienced a lack of piped water access and the where as geographers, where in the U.S., given that it's a large nation and varies um, quite a bit. We did find that apart from the problem being urbanized, we did also find that communities of color or people of color, non-white peoples, were more disproportionately prone to lack piped water, particularly people who had both households that experienced low incomes or lived in areas that were really unaffordable. Um, so it wasn't just that like it was a low-income household of color, but that if it was in a city that such as San Francisco with really exorbitant housing costs that were out of reach for many regular families, then that put people in more precarious housing situations where then they were therefore more likely to lack regular piped water. And so that's where we begin to see cities such as Portland, Oregon, San Francisco, Austin, Texas, Los Angeles, these cities that are seen as ideal urban development models float to the top 10, top 15 in terms of raw numbers of people without piped water access, as well as a percentage or share of the population as well. Other kinds of findings that we had in our modeling efforts was that unplumbed households were more likely to earn lower incomes, live in mobile homes as a kind of specific type of housing accommodation, pay a higher share of their gross income towards housing costs. This is what the U.S. government calls cost burdened, which is defined as when you pay more than 30% of your take-home salary toward your rent or mortgage. Um, which probably would put all people in London in a cost-burdened category. But this can give you a sort of more relative understanding of how expensive it is to live in an area. And finally, renters. And I think this finding really confuses people or it surprises people because they think that 
is it illegal for a landlord to rent a residence that lacks pipe water? And most likely it is. But what we're finding are that there are plenty of people who are renters who don't have complete plumbing in their household. So something's going on in terms of enforcement or the lack thereof. And I think what that finding in particular speaks to is the precarity of these particular households at that housing water nexus. In other words, these are households that are living at the knife edge of affordability and uh, rental status, you know, that puts them in a situation where they have to accept certain kinds of living conditions, even though, you know, it's a lot of work to live in a house without piped running water. Yeah, I mean, the the research is fascinating because it it really does tell a story, a wider story. I mean, it, it focuses on water access, but actually tells a story of American socioeconomic models and that story mm-hmm. at a particular time where it seems the whole world is engaged in American politics. In particular, you mentioned about that urban focus and the way in which, if you look down in the study, the list of cities, many of them Democrat run, now it sounds like Donald Trump attacking Democrat run <laughs> cities, and I don't mean to do that, but more that these are some of the wealthiest places in mm-hmm. America, but also those places that have the largest levels of inequality. And so we often hear about inequality as something that people don't want. And and the pushback, I guess, is that, well, just having rich people is not a bad thing as long as everyone rises up. But this study kind of demonstrates perhaps that inequality in itself is causing issues, for example, in water access. Would that be would that be fair to say? Yeah, I think the development narrative is this is me sort of generalizing the story is that in an advanced capitalist society like the United States, We tend to take for granted basic provision of resources like housing, like electricity or energy, and also water and sewerage. And to some degree, the problem of water was solved in American history during the 1800s when America rapidly urbanized. Many people moved to cities for job opportunities and disease outbreaks and sort of social mobilization led to many municipalities creating utilities and a kind of integrated universal water network that supplied water from a central place to all the inhabitants of that metro area. That's kind of where a lot of the um, story tends to end. Like we have that imaginary of this is what the urban social fabric actually looks like. But what's interesting in the way that I think about that my team and I think about infrastructure is really that it's the physical or material manifestation of what are fundamentally social relationships how we think of each other, how we think of particular populations and groups, and especially how the state governs them. To what extent do certain groups belong to the nation state? Um, and infrastructure is this material way that you could really track how, how the state really thinks about who belongs and who doesn't to a country or to a nation. And so what I think is what I think is interesting about this study is that it pulls out that sharp irony that, you know, a scholar like James Baldwin would articulate in a really different way, but that we articulate with numbers in a place like San Francisco, that the sort of irony that even within this advanced capitalist society, with all the technical expertise that you have to deliver people water, with lots of money, especially compared to, you know, other places in the world, with the kind of broad-based governance capability to do this, you have a huge population, 1.1 million people, which is an most likely a conservative estimate. It may be higher to 2 million people or the size of, you know, the metro Washington, D.C. population. 
You have that amount of people in 2017 who lack a fundamental thing that we all need to live. And I think that it says quite a bit about the promise of capitalism and specifically racialized capitalism, since that's sort of what our results are pointing to, to deliver on its, you know, if you work hard enough, uh, you too will make it in society. These people are millions of people working really hard um, who don't have access to this fundamental life-giving resource through a set of infrastructures that households need to survive. So I think there's a great quote that I, I think about from a documentary film that was done, I think it was the year 1963, and a, a camera team followed James Baldwin as he was touring the streets of San Francisco. And he was observing it you know, as a visitor, as a New Yorker. And he said, you know, this place, he said, you would never think in the streets of San Francisco that there are any problems here. He said, it just looks prettier than New York. Granted, this is the 1960s when New York City experienced like, you know, all kinds of urban blight and poverty issues and criminalized policing, et cetera. So things were bleak in New York. That's where my family's from. So I can say that things looked really shiny, as James Baldwin put it in San Francisco. He said, but make no mistake that the moral distance, which is to say the distance between a place like San Francisco, and he compared it to the city of Birmingham, which was experiencing a lot of racial violence and standoffs at the time. He said there is no moral distance between these two cities. And I think that's what our results speak to in a way, that a place like San Francisco or Portland, Oregon, these urban utopias are sites of slow types of infrastructural violence that benefit certain populations and leave behind others. And those stories are class-based and they're racialized in the United States. And we haven't accounted for them. One thing you speak about in the research in depth is, is what you call the housing water nexus. Can you tell listeners a little bit what you mean by this? Yes. So it's one thing to kind of identify disparities that are happening between kind of different socioeconomic levels or racial groups. That's something that we can see beyond just water in health outcomes and schooling and policing and all types of different infrastructure access. I think what this study does that distinguishes it from others is that we really identify a site or a mechanism of where marginalization is occurring. And for us, this is happening at what I call the housing water nexus. In water studies, they've invented quite a bit of nexuses or nexi. There's the food, water, energy nexus, which kind of tries to look at the links between our food production and consumption, how much invisible water we use and how much energy goes into that. And it sees it as an interlinked system. And I was inspired by that to apply that type of synthetic thinking to thinking about two domains or sectors that don't really speak to each other, which is water management, utility governance, and housing. These issues are constantly treated as separate. Um, you know, build more housing is about urban growth and development and planning. And water is seen as something different. It's often supply oriented. Where are we going to get our water? What river or reservoir or aquifer will it come from? And we don't really think about the connections in between there. And that, I think, is where we begin to see some of the breakdown, and that's where we see households falling through the cracks. And so one of our arguments in this paper is that we have to understand the housing water nexus um, as, a, as a product of structural inequality. It's not random, it's not accidental, but it's social and it's systemic in nature. And it's at this kind of intersection of 
housing policies and water management decisions and systemic social inequality. As you mentioned, clearly this has huge implications in the United States, but equally those kinds of issues where we have workers, often their income is now being taken up by larger and larger chunks in terms of housing costs and basic utilities. It sounds like this issue may be one that's present in not just the United States, but also in Europe and and here in London and the UK. Yes, I think, you know, in many, um, these models of universal water provision in the 1800s and 1900s were shared among a lot of countries in Western Europe and disseminated really all around the world, you know, in, in Mexico City, in Pakistan, in, you know, parts of East Asia. A lot of these places um, adopted these sorts of models of water extension and provision. And for many households, it's their responsibility as the household to connect to the water main in the street, right? And that kind of short, you know, it could be five meters long, right? We're not talking about a lot of tubing. That could run a household five, ten thousand dollars right? That kind of reflects barriers in terms of abilities to pay or governance or responsibilities or, you know, especially if you're a renter, why would you invest in that kind of tubing infrastructure or investment into that property? It reflects a kind of a broader disenfranchisement of people through specifically housing, particularly as, you know, I think what was really interesting in cities like New York, right, we found Um, In 2017, approximately 65,000 individuals lacked pipe water. And granted, you know, it's really hard to wash your hands in a global pandemic like coronavirus if you don't have ready access to water. You know, New York City is not the most expensive, but it's one of the most unaffordable places for middle class and working class people to live. Traditionally, the city used to have all kinds of different co-ops and housing subsidies provided by the state that have disappeared quite substantially over the last 20 years. We've also seen a radical restructuring of the rental market post-2008 financial recession. I don't know if it's depression now or a recession, whatever. The Great Recession of 2008 in the U.S. after that, a lot of the kind of mom-and-pop landlords sort of lost their homes And large corporations came in and sort of scooped up millions, thousands of properties all over this, all over um, the United States, particularly in California and Texas, the kinds of places that people were moving to. And so what you see is uh, not only a, a rising rates of rent as incomes remain flat, like people aren't getting paid anymore, even accounting for inflation, but you also see a different ownership going on about who is your landlord in the United States that's increasingly corporatized, financialized, securitized, and controlled by large institutions that you have to wade through a phone bank to call someone and say, help, I can't pay my bill, my water bill this month, and it's being shut off. So all these kinds of transformations, I think you can see not just in the United States, but in cities, for example, in Western Europe and the UK. London is one of the more expensive housing markets. I think it's no accident that we are also experiencing in London and the UK a rising rates of people who are experiencing homelessness or who are living in really precarious housing, you know, unauthorized rentals, such as the kinds of sheds and backyards or, you know, illegally subdivided places to live. You know, this kind of spectrum of precarious housing is where you begin to see quite a bit of plumbing poverty, where you begin to see households without 
stable or reliable access to water, even here in the UK. I always think it's interesting when I talk to my students about this because I say, tell me an example of when you would see water insecurity, you know, on your walk through London. And, you know, they kind of scratch their heads. I think they often have a global south imaginary of what that looks like. And then I ask them to say, when was the last time you saw a person sleeping on the streets, sleeping rough, or living in a tent in your neighborhood park? And I bet 70% of the room raises their hands. I said, those people are experiencing plumbing poverty. Those are people experiencing homelessness without a secure or normal access to a toilet, to a bathing facility, and to water. And I think we saw that the most during the um, March, April COVID measures that shut down a lot of the public water and toilet facilities in parks. And that left a lot of people who were homeless without any kind of safe or adequate supply of water or sanitation. They did move many people into accommodation, but since that scheme ended in the last month, you see people back out on the street and just back where they started living in plumbing poverty. As I mentioned earlier, this podcast is being released the day before the US election. We're recording a few days before. We all hope, of course, that America can come through this more united, hopefully with with a more hopeful future. But some of these issues are occurring not just in the poorer states or in Republican-held areas where perhaps a free market idea has taken hold, but actually in Democrat states and Democratic cities as well. You know, how important is it to see this as a structural problem in the United States? And does that mean that they need to take a, a wholehearted look at the actual economic and social systems that currently dominate uh, U.S. politics? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think as a voter and a social scientist, I am skeptical by nature. And I always say that skepticism is a superpower because it allows you to be a little bit of arm's length from a particular issue or maybe a candidate who inspires you because you begin to see how that candidate or person fits into a broader trajectory that has been heading in a direction that leads to wider inequalities, not smaller ones, right? That's the story of the U.S. in many ways. The Democratic Party is avowedly pro-capitalist, and they will continue to be so even if they get elected. I think one thing that gives me hope is that no matter what, whether a government is conservative or quote-unquote liberal or middle-of-the-road In advanced capitalist societies, when we experience crises, we tend to invest in infrastructure. This is something that happened after the 2008 recession. President Obama in the U.S. invested heavily in TARP program and investment in infrastructure investment, roads, bridges, highways, all kinds of things, you know, with the hope that that would A, get the economy kickstarted and B, give people jobs and C, Um, invest in infrastructure that could deliver capital returns down the road, right? It was a kind of an emergency influx for a hope that this would stimulate the economy in the long term. Interestingly, when Boris Johnson came to power as prime minister of the UK last autumn, last December, um, he did the same thing. I think there's some funny videos of him out there with hard hats saying, build, build, build. This was pre-coronavirus pandemic. But It was the same sort of strategy that his conservative government adopted. They're going to invest in large-scale infrastructure to kind of stimulate the economy and yield returns down the road. So I guess if I were to put my strategy hat on, I would hope that no matter what party is elected to the U.S. presidential office, or and, and not just at the federal level, but at state levels as well, 
you know, the state of California is almost like a size of a Western European nation in many ways, that they begin to kind of invest in the kinds of infrastructure that are not just for sheer capital gain, like transportation or digital networks, but the kinds of infrastructure that everyday people need to live, right? Like water, like schooling, like sewerage. And I think that's what we see when we hear schemes for the Green New Deal. Like it's a, there's a lot of infrastructure talk and investment proposals put there, not just the kind of nuts and bolts infrastructure, but the social infrastructures that we need to survive. And so I think that my hope is that by presenting this kind of work, by mapping it at a scale that's 30,000 feet above sea level, you know, with statistics, with numbers that are rigorous, that are reliable, that are backed up by making claims that are backed up by hardcore data, that we can kind of begin to help policymakers make the case for investing in those kinds of social infrastructures that are for allowing people to have a thriving and quality life. Yeah, and it's so important that you mentioned there about at state level, and I think UK audience and even UK journalists often talk about the presidency as if that is the only game in town. And yet so much particularly in this field, it sounds like can be achieved at uh, a state level as uh, in the US. Yeah, water is governed, and you know, legally at the state level and among um, states and tribes, for example. Um, there are examples of federal laws and important influences that can be positioned at the national level that are important, you know, like the Clean Drinking Water Act in the 1970s came through uh, the EPA at the federal level. But really, I think the local area or domain is a place where we can begin to see changes, um, even if we don't see much movement going on at the federal or national level. So, Katie, it's the end of the podcast, but we always like to ask for some hope at the end of the episode um, when we're looking at these big, what can seem intractable problems. What hope can you give us? Is the signs of hope? (laughs) <laughs> it's Halloween nearly. So we <laughs> Day of the Dead uh coming up here. Yeah, um let me reach deep for that hope. Um the hopey changey thing as, as Obama promised us years ago. The main results, you know, the implications that emerge out of this study are grim. They paint a sort of grim picture of what water poverty looks like in the United States. And based on the trends that we elicited out of our modeling and statistical efforts, we expect that plumbing poverty will probably stagnate or even worsen in many cities in the U.S. And this is based on the fact that like since 2008, the housing sector in the United States has declining rates of homeownership, so more people are renting. There's been a wide-scale transformation of the rental market, including corporate incursion and financialization and securitization. There are rising rates of median rent, so rents are increasing, um, but incomes are remaining flat. And a sizable portion of the rental market is cost burdened. And so in many of the places that we think are proliferating, that are urbanizing, that are developing, the kind of really sexy, cool San Francisco's, the Portland's, the Austin's, the Los Angeles's. These are places that are characterized by widening wealth gaps and unaffordable housing. And those demographics are increasingly communities of color, particularly African-Americans, the Black communities. So I remain skeptical. That doesn't mean that I remain hopeless. I think what we are seeing in the United States 
is activism around water issues in a way that I've never seen before. And in the places like Detroit, in Flint, Michigan, um, but also in Standing Rock and through some of the indigenous organizing around issues of water sovereignty and litigation in terms of suing, in terms of radical ideas of management of water that don't necessarily follow business as usual, which is where, you know, partially what has gotten us into this situation. So I do see, you know, people in the United States are not necessarily going to just roll over and take this. I do see signs of activism, mobilization, and organization. And this makes a lot of sense because these numbers, these rates of plumbing poverty have been with the United States for the history of the United States. And people have done things in the interim in order to build those social infrastructures and networks of water provision and access when the state or public entity isn't delivering on those. And I think part of the struggle for democracy is very much that it is a struggle, that it just doesn't appear ready-made, that we actually have to engage and make it the ideal that was promised to us at the founding of this country, despite all the structural violence that went into that founding. And I think what we can see from protests and mobilization, not just about water, but about other issues, is that what gives me hope is those groups are going to keep us honest and true. They might not tell us really nice bedtime stories about America and what it's all about, but we don't really need to hear nice bedtime stories. We need to look at the thing in its face, and then we need to do things to actually transform it and hold the United States to the democratic ideals in which it promises. Thank you so much. I'll take righteous anger over hope this time. Yeah, righteous anger. There's a lot that gets done with righteous anger. And it's not just anger. It's just sort of a, yeah, it's a kind of a stance, I think, that maybe makes you look at something and say, okay, you know, I I would like to reach this goal, but like, what do I need to do? You know, I'm not going to just swallow the assumptions and pretend that the U.S. is, you know, the meritocratic society that it, 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 you know, of the American dream. It is for some people, but for many others, it's been a big struggle. And I think there's a lot to learn from those constituencies. Dr. Katie Meehan, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to The World We Got This podcast from Global Affairs at King's College London. This podcast was produced by James Bagley and Lucy Willman, with editing from Rachel Waugh.